The Connection Podcast, connecting you to the life of the church community within the parish of Yate and the Froomside Benefice. Hello and welcome to the extra edition of The Connection Podcast. This is an episode where we recorded live at 6.30 Praise that was recorded on the 17th of September at St Mary's Church. Praise is a fantastic service where multiple congregations from many churches come together every Sunday evening at 6.30 at St Mary's Church in Yate where we take part in a very informal worship and praise service where every so often there's a live band but there is praise music every week with a sermon series right in the middle that's delivered by lay members and of course members of the clergy. It's a really great community and I would highly recommend any of you to come along and just sample what 6.30 Praise is all about. I'd like to dedicate this episode to Pauline Seeley, who was a member of the 6.30 Praise congregation. Unfortunately, she lost her life in the early part of August and this week we had her funeral where we were able to celebrate everything that was great about Pauline. Pauline was a regular member of the 6.30 Praise congregation where health permitted and was one of those great fans of being able to connect with our church from being at home through the online services that we provided. During lockdown, I had the privilege with my wife to deliver 6.30 Praise at home and she was a regular face that came along and took part in singing and taking part in the service. Pauline will be deeply missed and I know for once she would have really enjoyed the 6.30 Praise that we're all about to listen to. She was a listener of this podcast and I will be forever thankful for her being present in my life. praise. Now if you were stood where I'm stood, you would have seen that through all of that drum bit of music, Heather was dancing at the back. And and that's what made me smile. And actually it's really important that when we come and offer our praise and worship to God, that we do so with joy and enthusiasm. So thank you Heather for leading the way. I was tempted to copy your dance moves. But to be fair, I would have made it look awful, so I didn't bother. But uh, thank you for leading us in that way. This evening, we are privileged to have the band with us. Um, I think it's really great when we've got the live music, and they will be leading us through our sung worship this evening. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Reverend David Jones, but I think you all know me by now. Yes, good. Um, And tonight... Um, the rector here in Yates, Ian Wallace, is going to be 
talking us through the second chapter of Joshua, I believe. Second chapter of Joshua. So that should be good. Um, and we look forward to that. And so I'm going to do the bidding prayer, and then I'm going to invite Ian up to tell us just that little snippet of what we might expect from his talk this evening. Heavenly Father, as we gather to bring praise and honour to your name, we thank you for the many lessons we can learn from the life of Joshua. Let us pray that by faith we would carry out your perfect will for our lives with courage and in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that as we face the inevitable difficulties and dangers of life, we would look to you for direction and guidance. Help us to put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ian, come and give us a little snippet of what we might expect. Thank you very much, Dave. Hello, everybody. Um, those of you who occasionally stand here to deliver a message will know that not only do we get given um, a, a sort of a, a chapter and verse of what we're supposed to do, but it comes with a, a little title to go along with it. And uh, I, I'm not sure where all these titles come from. Maybe Wanda Dreams More Up, or maybe there's a sort of um, a, a resource book she's got somewhere that she borrows it all from. Anyway, the title for this evening is Sending in the Spies, Finding a Surprise, which is one of those sort of twee rhyming titles, sort of worthy of the Daily Mirror or something like that, isn't it? But anyway, my emphasis is not so much on the spies, but I think there's more than one surprise actually in our passage this evening. So there we are. A talk full of surprises. I look forward to that. I think, I think I like surprises. Depends what they are. Depends what challenges they bring about, I suppose. Um, so, I'm going to hand over to Ian and the band who's to, who are going to lead us in our sun worship. Thanks very much, Dave. Oh, it's really loud now. Sending in the spies. Sounds a bit like um, the news, actually. Very topical, isn't it? Very topical indeed. Look forward to it. Psalm 115, uh, in fact, um, says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And um, as Paul also said, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. So that's what we're going to do this evening as we, as we sing our <coughs> praises to, to the Lord. Um, and we're going to start with This is Amazing Grace. So let's all, let's all stand and give our praise to Him because He's worthy.
is make unpleasant noises and you think, have I kicked out all of the sound for all of the churn? Are the lights still on? Thankfully, our God is a good God with a powerful name and it seems like all is well. So I'm going to invite Ian up um, and I'm going to pray for him and he shall give us his talk and enlighten us on Joshua. Heavenly Father, we pray for Ian as he delivers your word. May you fill him with your Holy Spirit and may you enable us to hear your word and live it in our daily lives. Through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Good, well, as I uh, said earlier on, we are in the second chapter of Joshua. We're um, having this sermon series where we're, we're exploring this book. We had chapter one last week, so here is chapter two. <coughs> then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she'd taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, so I've given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts sank and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family, because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window 
for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, Go to the hills so that the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there for three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside the house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our heads if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river and came to Joshua son of Nun and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Let's just pray and ask God to reveal what he wants us to hear tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we know that sometimes it can be uh, quite hard to understand and to see what it is that you're saying to us. But we ask that you'll give us open hearts, open minds and open eyes and ears this evening. So that we might listen to your voice and know how you want us to live in this land. Amen. Now I feel I need to start by managing some expectations. If you were here last week, which I know some of you weren't, but if you were, you'll have heard the suggestion that I might be able to provide you with, with the answer tonight to the question, did God initiate a genocide? Well, I'm not gonna do that tonight. Now, I know those of you will think, well, well what a cop-out, eh? But I think I have three good reasons. Um, the first one is that it has almost nothing to do with tonight's text. And I feel that if we're going to truly allow God to speak to us through the book of Joshua, we must focus on the specific text and not get distracted by wider theological debates. Secondly, I think we need to understand the whole story before we try, sort of, try to sort out some of these other issues and jump, jump to conclusions. We're only just at the beginning. Let's hear what happens and explore it before we uh, cast judgment. But the third thing is that I have a feeling that our danger, oh, sorry, that there's a danger that our understanding of this book of Joshua is in danger of being hijacked by two competing political forces at work in our world. So the first one is a sort of macho Republican theology, which emphasises God's command in chapter one to be strong and courageous and in a sort of go get them, let's claim the territory sort of way. It's all about power plays and forcing other people out the way. 
And that doesn't actually fit with my reading of the text. Because actually there's no courage in being more powerful than the next guy and forcing them out, on the, out of the way. If God was calling on Joshua to be courageous, there must have been some need. And courage, I think, is needed when you're the weaker party, when you have to be the one standing up for what is right against the bully. Joshua faces an overwhelming task and needs to be very courageous to see it through against the odds. So I don't subscribe to the sort of the, the macho, what I call the macho Republicans view of things. But the second is the sort of the polar opposite, almost a reaction to the first, and I think it's sadly tainted with elements of anti-Semitism. It's the theology that starts from the point of saying, oh, how terrible that God's people should invade sovereign territory belonging to other people. It casts the people of God as a sort of equivalent to, to Russia invading Ukraine. And it concludes with a sort of, I could never believe in a God who orders that. But I don't think that's what's happening here, as I should explain. Ah, I hear you say, metaphorically, <laughs> but doesn't the text refer to Joshua sending in spies secretly? Isn't that evidence of devious deceit? Well, not necessarily. The Bible doesn't tell us who he was keeping the secret from. There is more than one commentator who suggests that he wisely kept the existence of the spies secret from his own people. Because the last time spies were sent out publicly by the people of God, it turned out very badly for Israel when people returned to a negative report, or the people reacted to, to, to the negative report that was brought back. You see, I'm worried that we come at this book of Joshua with a lot of untested assumptions and preconceived ideas that actually makes it more difficult for God's message to get through. And I want to encourage us to look with new eyes and with open minds that we're going to learn from this book of Joshua. And that may involve some resetting of how we have previously understood these passages. So where do we start? Well, I think we have to start all the way back in Egypt, where it becomes very clear that God's people were an oppressed, enslaved people. They are effectively refugees escaping from oppression, like maybe the Rohingya or you know, the Syrians or even the Ukrainian refugees that are coming to this country. And they are returning home to their ancestral lands. And today, that right to return home to your ancestral lands is actually enshrined in international humanitarian law. It's UN policy that when conditions allow, refugee, allow refugees should be repatriated to their homeland. So the aim is that the Rohingyas will all eventually go back into uh, Burma. The Syrians should be given the opportunity to return home, you know, those, particularly those living in camps around about it, which is why they're not being resettled elsewhere. A lot of them are being kept in camps in the hope that they can return to their, their, their lands. And that policy um, 
persists, even if generations have passed. So, you know, there were Rwandan refugees in southern Uganda for many, many years, several generations, and it was always the policy that they should be allowed to return. The trouble is with that policy that in the intervening period, boundary fences tend to get moved and people's houses tend to get appropriated and works of art are sort of stolen and disappear and, and, and things like that. So there's often resistance to, to people coming back. But that doesn't negate the right of refugees to return to their homeland. And I suggest that to view the people of Israel as, a, as an invading army like the Russians invading Ukraine actually ignores their history as an oppressed refugee people. Then if you have another look at chapter 1, you will actually see that nowhere does God suggest that anyone should be killed. There is an encouragement to go back into the land that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had peacefully occupied. And if you go back into Genesis, particularly Genesis 12, it appears that those ancestors had lived peacefully alongside the Canaanites. In fact, I think even, you know, they, they were seen as doing deals and buying plots of land for, for burial sites, which suggests that the land was not heavily settled and that there was enough land for everyone. When I visited Prisbron in Kosovo at the height of the crisis, one of the things that really left a, a deep impression on me was the 14th century mosque that stood right alongside, on the other side of the street, from the 11th century Orthodox Church. And it was a sign that those two religious communities had lived peacefully alongside each other for centuries. That was until Serbia decided to invade, at which point both buildings sadly became surrounded by razor wire and UN peacekeepers. I saw something similar in Rwanda where there was much intermarrying between Hutus and Tutsis until the politicians decided to draw a line between them. And if you think about it, the very call for us to be salt and light in a community suggests that God is actually calling us uh, to peaceful coexistence with our neighbours, even though they are not yet part of God's family and may hold all sorts of opposing and, and, and hostile views. Which then brings us to Rahab. Even before we, heard, we, we, we learn her name, we're told that she was a prostitute. And it's almost as if that description blinds us to the rest of the text. You know, there's immediate pictures and sort of assumptions that spring to mind when we're told that. And I would suggest that in some Christian circles there can almost be a, a purient interest in, you know, the sort of sinful woman of the night, the harlots being used to advance God's purposes. But it's a very two-dimensional picture of Rahab, isn't it? And if we get stuck there, I think we fail to see what a really interesting person she is. She's clearly so much more than just a prostitute. 
For a start, we're told that she had enough stalks of flax on her roof to be able to hide the two spies. And that suggests, at very least, that she was a farmer drying her crops. Or maybe, also, she was a, a linen maker with her own business, getting the flax and stalk ready to be made into linen. Then it becomes clear from her dialogue with the spies that she's a, a proactive, intelligent and articulate woman who is in touch enough with world events at the time to know all about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea 40 years earlier. And she's confident enough to take the initiative. She's already decided that the God whom the people of Israel worship is the God of heaven and earth. And then lastly, we learn that she's not a loner, but she has a father and a mother and brothers and sisters. Maybe she's having to care for them all as the, as the only breadwinner. This is hardly the traditional profile of a, of a prostitute that sort of springs to our mind with that 2D image. I wonder if there is something else going on here. Then, there is her encounter with the spies who Joshua had sent. So let me ask you this question. Who among you, if you met a couple of Russian spies outside Boswell's in Yate Town Centre, possibly carrying a little bottle of perfume, would invite them back to your house? None. And that response suggests to me that it's hardly plausible to assume that Rahab just bumped into the spies and said, oh yeah, come into my house. How come Rahab gets to meet the spies in the first place? And why is she instantly so welcoming of the spies uh, that come from a seemingly hostile people? And why does she go further than that? Why does she risk her life for you lot wouldn't even invite them into your house, and I don't think I would either. So why did she risk her life for them? It's almost as if the spies knew who to look for and who to contact. The next thing that comes through the text is that her house was part of the city wall. Now that's not somewhere that anyone of wealth lives. If you think about, you know, most cities circled by city walls are palaces tend to be in the centre of the city, away from the city walls. Then you get the merchant classes, they tend to cluster around the main square, also fairly near the centre. Then you get the upwardly mobile or excessively hopeful, who will tend to try to live as close to the wealthy and the merchant classes as possible, in the hope of having some influence and some of their, their wealth rubbing off. It was so in our medieval cities, it still is in many African cities today. It's the poor who get squeezed out to the perimeters with their houses thrust right up against the city wall, which of course is the most vulnerable of all positions in the event of attack, an attack. And finally, we're told that Rahab let the spies down by a rope through the window. The laws of physics don't allow for a single woman to be able to lower two spies without either being a really bulky Olympic weightlifter or having a complex system of pulleys 
or without some help. Even doing it one by one would be tough. Might it be possible that Rahab was part of an oppressed and marginalized class that had decided to resist the repressive corruption of the king of Jericho and his minions and his police state that knew precisely who was going in and out of her house? Was she perhaps the leader of a resistance cell whom Joshua had previously encountered when he spied on the land? Maybe Joshua's campaign was more of a liberation campaign to free the oppressed than grab territory. I'm just putting these out as possibilities. I'm not saying definitely. Jericho had a reputation that spread across the area, a reputation for corruption and greed and all sorts of other things going on. And there is a sense that the collapse of its walls is emblematic of a crashing down of an evil and corrupt society, in much the same way that we talk about the Berlin Wall coming down. When we talk about the Berlin Wall coming down, we don't just mean that the, the concrete fell, we also talk about it as being emblematic of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, who knows? I have to say, I certainly don't. And in fact, we can never fully know. But what I hope I'm getting across this evening is that we, is that we can look at that wider picture rather than and, and ditch this very two-dimensional representation of Rahab the prostitute and recognise her for the interesting person that she is. So what can we learn from this chapter and from the person of Rahab? Well, the first thing I think is let's not be too quick to jump to conclusions, but instead try to examine the text and be open to what God might be saying to us, rather than getting distracted by theological debates taking place in the universities of the world. Secondly, I think we can see that it's possible to live as a minority under what history and archaeology show us to be a corrupt and repressive, repressive regime and still be of use to God to be there for him at the right time. We can still show kindness as Rahab did to the spies in the midst of chaos and war. And that kindness will have its reward. I think the third thing we can see is that God had kept her hopes of freedom alive through the snippets of news that she kept hearing about the, the coming of the people of God. And she had come to that conclusion that the, the, the God who was their God was actually the God of heaven and earth. And we need to hold on to those glimpses of hope that God gives us, as Rahab did so that we can be ready for God when he has a special job for us to do. And fourthly, I think we can see that God is always at work behind the scenes to redeem the world from the evil that has spread as a consequence of the fall. A number of commentators from as early as the first century have pointed to the red cord that Rahab tied in her window as being a symbol 
of the blood of Jesus through which salvation was won. Rahab immediately put her faith in the safety of the scarlet cord and trusted those who had made that sort of covenant promise with her. And not only was she saved, but she also went on to marry one of the princes of Judah and according to Matthew's genealogy, became the great-great-grandmother of King David, the ancestor of Jesus. It does appear that in this chapter we get a glimpse of God at work to save the faithful oppressed who are hanging on in there, waiting for better times, and the hope that he gives them does not disappoint because ultimately Jesus has redeemed and saved us. There's a sense that we too live in a culture, a society that's becoming increasingly hostile. No, certainly not as hostile as I think Jericho was in that first century. But at times we too can seem to be a small, helpless minority. But God is at work and he will use our faithfulness to his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for Rahab, for the way she had come to that conclusion that you were the God of heaven and earth and were just hanging on in there and ready for you to use as part of your master plan. And thank you that she became an ancestor of your son, Jesus, when he was born on earth. Lord, help us to be people who hang on in there faithfully, no matter what the circumstances, so that we might be ready for that moment when you want to use us to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. is our custom, I'm going to ask you to form in little groups and we're going to discuss some of those topics that came up from Ian's talk tonight. And I made some <coughs> notes, so that might help. The first question that I raised is, what is courage? What is courage? Ian challenged us right at the start to say that perhaps sometimes what we think is the courageous thing to do is quite the opposite. And it takes more courage to do something else. So what is courage? And how was it shown by Joshua and Rahab? What might you discover if you don't jump to conclusions? What might you discover if you don't jump to conclusions? Now, to make that little conversation easier, you might want to think about when you have jumped to conclusions and that has clouded your view of reality. And we've all done it. And we all do it. And we all do it tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. But we're going to try not to, so we're going to discuss that. And then finally, you've only got three minutes for each of these questions now, so be quick. Finally, 
How might you be faithful and ready to be used for God's glory? How might you be faithful and ready to be used for God's glory? Go.
Oh, 
Heavenly Father, help us to take to heart the important lessons in the story of the two spies who came to Rahab's home, whom she helps to escape from Jericho. Thank you that you are a God who uses everything to work toward the fulfilment of your perfect plans and purposes. Even when we fail to trust you as we ought. Thank you for Rahab's example of faith in you, through her protection of the Israelite spies. But thank you also for the reminder that you never condone lying and other sins, even when the motive to do so is for the good of others. Help us to maintain our faith in you, even when our circumstances appear impossible. For your word is true, and your promises never fail. We praise and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you and all those you love, this night and always. Amen. Just grab two minutes of your time with, with notices, I'm afraid. Firstly, um, two weeks today, the 1st of October, and this is October, so anyway, it is. Two weeks today, uh, there's no 6.30 praise for a very good reason, and it's because we're having a joint church's celebration at Yate Methodist Church to celebrate all that the, 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 the churches do together, things like Regenerate, the Town Centre Chaplaincy, Joint Youth Work, uh, pilgrim group up at uh, Mountain Garden Village, all those sorts of things. So uh, don't come here in two weeks' time. Go to uh, Yate Methodist Church. But then, if that's not exciting enough, <laughs> on the 18th of November, we are hosting uh, the Riding Lights Theatre Company. Um, uh, it's going to be at St Nick's. Tickets are on sale, and it's not Eventbrite. I forget the name of the... Ticket source. Ticket source, that's right. We will, there is a, a wonderful QR code that we'll try to get circulated by email and sort of Facebook and everything else like that, you know, that, that you can just scan and go on and it'll, it'll be right through there and you'll get your tickets in an instant. But um, tickets are now on sale, 18th of November, uh, but the most important thing is get the date in your diary and uh, um, it's a Saturday evening and here is a little teaser, if we can, Gus, is that available? What do we have here, Corporal? UXP, sir. Unexplored battle. Hasn't been opened in ages. So it's our job to keep it that way. Any markings? Front, gold lettering, holy Bible, property of all saints. Very dangerous. Yes, sir. Take back some Paul's missionary journeys. Can't say about opening her up, sir. Oh, well, we can't risk that, Corporal. There's a full charge between those covers. Stand all back while we, sir. A few powerful sentences might be enough. Good luck, sir. I'm approaching the UXB with the anti-exploration phantom device. I'm placing the phantom device around the UXB. Proceeding to tighten water Cool. 
Oh, it doesn't bother me. I just wish I understood it more. 